And so our worship continues as we give attention to God's word this morning. I'm turning to the Acts of the Apostles, or some of you may recognize the Acts of the Holy Spirit, the very first chapter in that book written by Luke, the Acts of the Apostles, chapter 1, and I'm reading the first 14 verses from the English Standard Version. Acts chapter 1 and verse 1. In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up, after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. He presented himself alive to them after his sufferings by many proofs appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, You have heard from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, It is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, Behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus, who was taken up from you into heaven, will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. Then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey away. And when they had entered, they went up to the upper room where they were staying. Peter and John and James and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus, and Simon the Zealot, and Judas the son of James. All these, with one accord, were devoting themselves to prayer, together with the women, and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. May it please the Lord to bless to us this morning this portion of his word. 
Before we come to the ministry of God's word, we want to pray together. And just to do something a wee bit different this morning, I'll lead us as a congregation in prayer, and then I would invite you to join me in prayer. I'm asking the, the guys if they would please put up the slide of what we call the Lord's Prayer, so that we might pray this prayer together. So let's pray. Father, we thank you for the invitation extended to us by you to come and worship. How amazing that you've invited us to come and worship, for you are a holy God. We thank you that you have given to us your word to encourage us to come. You've said, seek me with all your heart. You've said to us, call unto me, and I will answer thee, and show thee great and mighty things thou knowest not. And we thank you, our Father, that you call us to come, and you call us to listen, to hear your voice, to hear the words that you would speak to us, the directions that you would give to us, the encouragement that you would share with us, the hope that you would plant within us. And therefore, our Father, as was read in our hearing already this morning, we come to you praying that you would open the eyes of our hearts, open the eyes of our understanding, that we might learn more of you, that we might be a people who know their God, know the way in which you rule this world, and the way in which you would redeem fallen men and women and bring them into your family, to know more of your grace and your mercy, to know that glorious hope that you would grant to us, to know that we are just traveling through this world of time and there is spread out for us in eternity that glorious privilege of being with you and seeing you and being like you forever and ever. Our Father, we live in trying times, we live in difficult times, we live in dangerous times. But we thank you that you would quieten our hearts by your word, that you would strengthen our faith, that we would continue to look to you and to trust in you and to lean on you, that we might know that comfort of your spirit and that enabling of your spirit to be good witnesses of our faith to this lost and dying world, that they may see in us a people who are not careless or indifferent, but a people who have a glorious hope, which is not fixed in anything that we can say or do, but in all that which you have said and that which you have done for us. We pray for each other, for you know our Father the burdens of our hearts, you know the difficulties that we face. You know, our Father, those things which weigh upon us even now. We ask, our Father, that you would meet each of us in our need 
and show yourself to be that great and glorious God who is able to do exceedingly abundantly more than we can ever ask or think or imagine. And we commit this world to you, our Father. The circumstances within the Middle East, Ukraine, and other places of this world where there's turmoil and tragedy. And pray, our Father, that you would work out your purposes. And praying especially for your people, wherever they may be found, that they may be strengthened with might by your Spirit in the inner man, that in the midst of great darkness and danger, they may yet know that you are on their right hand. They have not been neglected. They have not been forgotten by you but they may have a glorious experience of your presence. And so join with me, please, congregation, as we bring this time of prayer to a close by saying together this lovely prayer to our God. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. Amen. Last Sunday, we had the pleasure of having Nathan Potts with us, ministering the Word of God to us. And I'm sure we're looking forward to January when uh, Nathan will come and take up that role as your new pastor. So, what do we do in the meantime? What should we do from now until then, when Nathan will stand here in the pulpit as your pastor? Well, in our scripture reading from Acts 1, we read what Jesus' followers did while they waited, while they waited for the promised Holy Spirit of God. And what did they do in the midst of their waiting? Well, we're told in the 14th verse of that first chapter of Acts, they devoted themselves to prayer. And surely we must do likewise. Now, I would hazard to say that uh, most, if not all of you, have heard other sermons on the topic of prayer. And some of you have probably read books on the topic of prayer. And some of you may have even attended seminars on this subject of prayer. But given that, and knowing well my own heart and life, I would conclude that it is easier to listen to a sermon on prayer than it is to pray. That it is easier to read a book 
on prayer than it is to pray. That it's easier to go and spend some money and attend a conference on prayer than it is to actually pray. And from a pastor's perspective and confession, it's easier to preach on prayer than to pray. But thankfully, the Lord knows us. And thus, in addition to exhorting us to pray, he instructs us on how to pray. And so I would ask this morning that you come with me in your Bible, and I trust you have a copy with you, that you come with me in your Bible to Matthew's Gospel and to the sixth chapter, where, Lord willing, we'll spend the coming weeks seeking to learn from the lips of the Master how to pray. I'm simply calling this sermon series, Pray Then Like this, the words of verse 9 of the sixth chapter in the English Standard Version. Pray then like this. Here we have set before us what we commonly call the Lord's Prayer. But let me just say this, that in reality, uh, technically, uh, the Lord's Prayer is in John 17. This is the disciples' prayer. He's teaching the disciples how to pray. And by way of introduction this morning, I want to draw your attention to, some, to, to three basic features that are recorded here by our Lord as we come to God in prayer. Pray like this. First of all, the doctrinal foundation of prayer. The doctrinal foundation of prayer. How does it begin? Matthew chapter 6 and verse 9. Our Father in heaven. Our Father in heaven. Notice the relationship implied here. Because, you see, true prayer is, is not divorced from the great propositional truths of Scripture. Prayer, that relationship that we have with the Father, is revealed to us in the very Word of God. Prayer must arise from, be based upon, and employ the very words of Scripture. You see, we, we live in an age when we are told that uh, while there may be various faiths and various religions and, and we as Christians may, may differ from them, nevertheless, we're told we can get together and that we can pray together. But the question we have to ask is this, to whom are we praying? And through whom are we praying? You see, the, the confronting fact is this. 
Christianity is a most intolerant religion. You mightn't like that, but that's Christianity. It does not conform to this world and its thinking. And this is implied right here, right at the beginning of Jesus' teaching on prayer. Pray then like this, our Father in heaven. All right, who is this Father? He is the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. He is the Father who so loved the world of sinful men that he gave his only begotten Son. He is the Father who spared not his Son but gave him up for his all. He is the Father who declared of that Son, Jesus, this is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. Listen to him. And what did the Son say? What are we to listen to? No one comes unto the Father but by me. There's only one way, my friends, to the Father. There's only one name given whereby we must be saved in order to come to the Father. And such is the essential basis for prayer. As Christians, as Bible believers, we may only pray with those who own the truths of Scripture. For those who have a personal relationship with the Father through the work of the Son and the ministry of the Spirit. Those who can say honestly and humbly, Our Father in heaven, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. There's a doctrinal foundation, you see, to our, our praying. A relationship implied here. But then notice the responsibility that's involved here. Our Father. Our Father. What does that imply? The imperative for harmony, for unity, for our commonality. Philip Wrighton, his little work on the Lord's Prayer entitled The Prayer of Our Lord, uh, wrote this little ditty that explains this Our Father. Let me quote. You cannot pray the Lord's Prayer and even once say, I you cannot say the Lord's Prayer and even once say my. Nor can you pray the Lord's Prayer and not pray for another. For when you ask for daily bread, you must include your brother. For others are included in each and every plea from the beginning to the end of it. It never once says me. 
our Father. So what is it that we have in common? How is it that we can employ this prayer together and express these words together? Our Father. What we have in common? Our adoption by the Father. Adoption, that, that majestic pinnacle of salvation. The, the, the great goal of our glorious God to bring us to himself in love in order that we might love him and love one another. How does John put it? Behold, what manner of love the Father has bestowed upon us that we should be called the children of God and such we are. We are one in Christ Jesus. Adoption is the highest expression of God's love towards his chosen people. And it is the love of a father for his child. The love of God for his own. I'm turning over to Paul's letter to the Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 1. Listen to what he writes as Paul begins this wondrous epistle. Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us, for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace. The Father has adopted us. How, how amazing is this? He has not simply forgiven our sins. He has not simply pardoned us all our iniquities. He's brought us into his family. He owns us as his own, and therefore together we have this in common, and thus we can pray, Our Father. The work of God binds us together. It makes us one. And thus as Paul went on to write to the Ephesians, we're no longer strangers, aliens, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. He is our Father in heaven. A relationship with him is implied. A responsibility to because of that is involved. And then also notice here, there's a reverence inferred here. Because you see, lest we come to the Father with that freedom that he's given to us, lest we use that freedom in a way which characterizes casualness, flippancy, or impertinence, Jesus would teach us to pray this way, saying, Our Father in heaven, in heaven, are not primarily a reference to the location of the Father, but of his exaltation, of his distinction, 
of his majesty and dignity. Because you see, folks, we, we fall into usually one of two errors. On the one hand, we see this father as one who is afar off. We recognize that he is sovereign. We recognize that he is supreme. We recognize that he is the one who is sustaining all things. That this, this God is so great, this God is so, so glorious that, we, that we, we draw back from calling him our father. And thus our praying can become formal. They lack warmth. There's little intimacy. God is so far away, so unlike us, that how can we have anything to do with him? But on the other hand, on the other hand, we may regard God the, God the Father as just like the, the, the man who lives next door to us. And therefore, we, we, we instead of coming formally, there's a flippancy in our praying. That there's the little reverence in our coming. There's hardly an ounce of godly fear. But we come to our Father in heaven with a casualness and a carelessness. And, and, and yet both aspects must be held in a blessed tension. A holy boldness to come to our Father through His Son. It combined with awe and reverence. Listen to the words of C.H. Spurgeon. He said, we may speak boldly with God. But still, He is in heaven. And we are upon earth, and we are to avoid presumption. Yes, said another, we come to a loving father, but we do not come as his equal. The doctrinal foundation of prayer, a relationship, a responsibility, a reverence. But then notice with me secondly this morning, the dangers faced in prayer, not only the doctrinal foundation of prayer, but the dangers faced in prayer. You see, from verse 5 through verse 7, Jesus points to how not to pray. He gives to us the negative aspects, the, the dangers. And, and, and I draw your attention to three aspects we need to be aware of and alert to. And the first is this, our, our attitude to our Father in heaven. Our attitude, and this can be expressed by must or may praying. You say, what do you mean? Well, let me ask you this. Why do you pray? Why do you pray? Is it because as a Christian, you have been taught that you must pray? You're expected to pray. And so to quieten your conscience, you have your prayer list, and you daily do your duty. 
you go through your routine and you proudly tick off that box for that day. You've done your bit, you've done your duty, you've said your prayers. You must pray, not because of the Spirit's constraint, but to fulfill a duty, a performance is given. And yet in reality, there's no, there's no life about your prayers. There's no heart in it. It's a weariness to yourself, and in fact, it's an abomination to God. On the other hand, there's what we may call may praying. How amazing that the likes of us, you and me, we can pray and speak to God above and call him our Father. May praying is infused and inspired with wonder and amazement and characterized by heartfelt confession, stuttering words, trembling lips, hope-filled yet humble hearts. The fact that we can call upon the high king of heaven, we can call him father, almost overwhelms us. So that our praying is not just a religious routine. It's, it's a relationship that we enjoy. It's a relationship which is to be explored. It's a relationship with God which is to be experienced. We can do nothing else but bow our heads and bend our knees before him. The heart's attitude of devotion and dependence. The dangers of our attitude to God. But then the danger of our approach to God. And Jesus illustrated in the story of the Pharisee and the tax collector, did he not? That's recorded for us in Luke chapter 18. I'm sure many of you remember the story told. And you consider and you read that portion and you see the Pharisee's approach he, he, he stands as far forward as possible because he wants to be noticed. He wants to be seen. He wants to display his piety and his spirituality. But what is missing? You look at his prayer. What's missing? There's no words of adoration to God. There are no words of confession of sin. There are no words of intercession. No, no, no. His whole approach was wrong. His emphasis was on himself. His eyes were on himself. He wanted to impress. He wanted to be known as a man of prayer. And my friends, prayer has become, for so many, a platform for pride. Thanksgiving, oh yes, he gave thanks, but not for God's goodness and mercy of grace, but when you read that 11th verse of that 18th chapter, and he says, God, I thank you that I am not like other men. My friend, sin is so sinful, and our hearts are so deceitful that pride can pollute the most sacred of our privileges, even prayer. 
And this is especially true for pastors. One has to be very careful as a pastor. You know, we live in these days of technology, which can be very helpful to us. You may get them, I get them at times from pastors and other, and there's a little word, you get a text in the morning, you know, uh, I was praying for you this morning. Encouragement? I trust so. But maybe it was to impress you that what a godly pastor you have. We have to be so, so careful in what we do. Praying. The tax collector, he would not even lift up his eyes to heaven. Why not? Because he knew what we were singing about, that this God, our Father in heaven, is a holy God. And he knew the sinfulness and the deceitfulness of his own heart. And so what do we see in this man? We see honesty, and we see humility, and we see fervency, and we see reverence. His own sense of depravity drove him to seek for mercy. And so how do we approach God? Privately, how do we approach him? Surely with humility and with glorious hope. Surely privately we approach him with reverence that he has revealed himself to us as a mighty God. But then corporately, let's think about coming together here. We come before the Lord here each Sunday morning. We come here to, to, to what can we call this place? Packenham Baptist Church? Yes. But what did Jesus describe the church as? This shall be the house of prayer. What kind of God are we demonstrating in our worship? What kind of God are we revealing from the first word that's spoken from this platform to the final amen in the morning? What view are we giving of our God? What one word would summarize our approach to God? The danger of our attitude, the danger of our approach, and thirdly, the danger of our amount. The Lord in verse 7 of Matthew chapter 6 draws attention to what has been called vain repetition. The NIV uses it, if you've got an NIV, it talks about babbling. The term that is used here is a term that points to coming to God in prayer, but that prayer is with mindless words, thoughtless words. And the point our Lord was making is simply this. True prayer engages the mind Prayer demands thought, and proof of that is seen in our own Lord's Prayer in John 17, and the prayers of the Apostle Paul as recorded in his epistles. And the fact is, my friends, our Father in heaven does not look for big words, finely formed, grammatically correct, perfectly expressed long prayers or mindless repetition of religious terms. He's not impressed by the length or the complexity of our prayers. We are children and we're to talk to our Father. And my friends, our prayers are not measured 
by their length. They're not measured by their vocabulary. But God doesn't measure prayers. God weighs prayers. The heart that's in it. The fervency that's in it. The desire that's in it. The dependency that's in it. The fidelity that's in it. You think again of the Pharisee and the tax collector. The Pharisee, we're told, standing by himself. Isn't that amazing? It's an amazing word, standing by himself. The, the picture being seen is that this man thinks he's praying, but God's not even there. He was too much full of himself. A tax collector, a short prayer, a significant prayer, a spiritual prayer. How eloquent. How acceptable to the Lord. God, have mercy on me, the sinner. Three dangers. Our attitude, our approach, our amount. And so thirdly and finally, you look at verses 6 through 8 of this 6th chapter of Matthew, and we see the directions fundamental to prayer. The directions fundamental to prayer. Jesus speaks to us about a place. A place. When you pray, go into your room. Now, Jesus is making a contrast here. Because where did the Pharisees, where did the hypocrites pray? Well, he tells us in verse 5, standing in the synagogues and on the street corners. Why? They are there because they want to be seen. They want to be known as prayerful people. But Jesus instructs his disciples, go into your room and shut the door. And Jesus' point is this, the need for and the importance of seclusion, of privacy, of isolation. A place where you cannot parade your prayerfulness before others. That's all he's saying. Find a place where you don't parade your supposed piety and prayerfulness. We're responsible for finding a place. And, and it may be in our culture at times, it may be a room, maybe a bedroom. Maybe you've got to go out to the garage. Maybe you've even got to go out and sit in your car. Or maybe the best thing for you is to go for a walk and pray as you, as you walk. But we're being told, find a place somewhere where privately you can speak to your Father in heaven. Because you see, my friends, the Bible does not lay down laws as to when or where. We are to be wise and we're to find and make a place that works for us personally. And a time that works for us to be alone with God. Now, let me, let me give you a personal testimony here. And some of you, I've got to be careful because some of you were uh, MBI students when I was an MBI student. So I'm going to have to choose my words. MBI, Melbourne Bible Institute. I have to be careful here. As far as my memory is concerned, the first bell went at 6 o'clock in the morning, which meant you all, everybody had to get out of bed and make the bed, have the showers and everything like that. At 6.30, the bell went again when you were to 
get on your knees beside your bed with your Bible on your bed, ready for your quiet time. And that went through till about 20 past seven, I think it was, unless you had duties to perform. So this was, everybody did the same. Now, I would hear the bell at six and I would get up. 6.30, I'd hear the bell, I'd get on my knees, my Bible open. 6.35, I was having my quiet time and you probably heard me snoring. I struggled to have a relevant, profitable, quiet time because I'm more a night person than I am a morning person. And I found it very difficult. I, I labored at it, I felt guilty about it, and I, and I tried, to, tried to read and I would try to pray. By God's grace, in my second year, I had a room to myself. So I was a wee bit freer. And I found that at 6.30 when the bell went, I would read a devotional book. Not a soppy thing, something with a bit of weight in it, but maybe a missionary biography or autobiography. And that warmed my heart. That helped me enormously. And then in the afternoon sometime, it's then that I would have my quiet time. When I was alert, Awake and aware. And all I'm saying, friends, we're all different. God's made us all different. There's no one set pattern. But know yourself and find a place when you can give your attention to his word and to prayer. A place. He then gives us a promise. The promise the unseen father will demonstrate his awareness, attention to us by rewarding us. You get that in verse 6. Simply this, he will respond to our prayers graciously, generously, and gloriously. The quote J. Oswald Sanders, In no sense is this reward a quid pro quo. It can never be earned by any human achievement. It is the expression of the pure, overflowing generosity of God towards those who seek his glory above the praises of men. A promise. A promise. Yet you know, friends, sometimes God's promises and our prayers collide. They don't correspond. And this came home to me during the week. I've been reading a little book by Alistair Begg. If you don't know Alistair Begg, God have mercy upon you. But uh, uh, Alistair Begg's little book, which is simply called Pray Big. And in that book, he draws attention to two words we use very frequently. I use it, and you probably use it. The two most familiar words used when Christians pray, do you know what they are when you listen to somebody pray? The most frequent words used when we pray is this, be with, be with. Let me quote from Begg. He says this. He gives an illustration of what he's getting at. Dear Lord, I pray that you will be with Tom as he goes to work and to be with Mary also who's having her wisdom teeth removed on Tuesday and be with, and be with, and be with, and be with us all. Amen. How unnecessary. 
For what did Jesus promise us? Behold, I am with you always. The writer of the book of Hebrews. I will never, never on no account will I ever leave you, nor will I ever forsake you. And so Alistair Begg concludes, it's a bit of a waste to request that Jesus would do what he already said he'd do and has already started doing. Beloved, promises, promises are given to us to fuel our prayers with praise so that instead of saying, God, be with so-and-so, we turn it around and we say, thank you, God. Thank you, Lord, that you'll be with Tom and you'll be with Mary and you'll be with Dick and you will be with Harry. Thank God that this week you're going to be with our elders. You're going to be with Don. You're going to be with Dennis. You're going to be with Jonathan. You're going to be with David. And when Nathan comes, you're going to be with him. Thank God for your promises. Lay hold of them. They give direction to a praying, a place, a promise, and finally, a proof. A proof. Have you ever noticed the repetitive phrase that you get here? You get it in verse 5, and you get it in verse 6, and you get it in verse 7. What is the phrase? What are the words that you get here repeated? When you pray. When you pray. When you pray. Jesus takes it for granted that his people will pray. It's not if you pray. It's when you pray. The implication being a proof of your genuine Christian faith is this. You pray. You pray. This is the sign of the Spirit's work in the life. The cry of the newborn. It's a cry to God, have mercy upon me, the sinner. A cry that comes constantly from the heart of a genuine believer. For as a Christian grows, they grow increasingly aware of their sin and their fallenness and their faithlessness and their depravity. And so the tax collector's prayer is owned and employed by us, is it not, regularly? When you pray... Is that God's word to you this morning? Or do they have no place and no relevance in your life? You see, what, what proof is there in your life that you belong to Jesus? When you pray, a distinguishing trait of Christian character. When you pray, when did he last hear your voice? When you pray, has he ever heard your voice? For all my friends, seek the Lord while he may be found and call upon him while he may be near the exhortation of the prophet. Forsake your wicked ways and know the promise of the prayer answering God 
For we are told that if you will seek him and call upon him and turn from your wicked ways, he will abundantly pardon. My friends, he is near. Call upon him while he is near. Oh, he's near, oh, so very near. He's here with us this morning. So you can call upon him now if you've never called upon him before. And you can know the pardon of your sins that you've never experienced before. Pray then like this. My fellow believers, we come to the one who is the creator and the sustainer of this universe. We come to the God, our Father, who holds the whole world in his hands. We come to the one who is the high king of heaven. And we come to the one who will judge this world by the man he has appointed, even Jesus Christ our Lord. And we come to one before whom the angels worship and sing and praise. And we come to this one and we pray. Our Father, dearest Father in heaven. How wonderful. How amazing. How that ought to put us on our faces before him, lost in wonder, love, and praise. Knowing that truth should encourage our hearts and inspire our worship. Pray then like this. Our Father in heaven. So let's pray. Father, thank you that you've made yourself known to us. You've opened the way for us. There's only one mediator between man and God, the man Christ Jesus. And we thank you that you've not only pardoned us our sin but you have invited us to become your children. And with that, this wonderful privilege and joy of coming to you, the great and mighty God, and say, Our Father, Our Father, Lord, what can disturb us, what can threaten us when you are our Father? Teach us how to pray. In Jesus' name, amen.